All right, folks, let's go ahead and get started this morning. Let's uh, open in prayer quick. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the freedom we have in this country to come together and to worship you and to learn more about you in this place. Lord, I pray that our time this morning would be productive, uh, that it would be productive and that we would learn a great deal. But not just that we would learn a great deal, but Lord, that you would change us through what we're learning. It wouldn't just be head knowledge, but we would also be able to apply these things to our lives and to, to be better servants of you. Lord, I pray that you bless our time together and that through this you prepare us to better worship you and to hear the preaching of your word later this morning. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> we finished the Ten Commandments last week. I didn't hear anybody cheer, so I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we finished it. And this week... We were going to start a series on the book of Colossians, right? because that's what we're doing next. We're going to go verse by verse through Paul's epistle to the Colossians, and I'm really excited for that, because I love doing exegetical series and just getting into the meat of Scripture, and Colossians is a great book because it's not super long, but it's very theological, and there's a lot of deep content and deep teaching to get into when we finally do get to Colossians. But we're going to start Colossians next week, because today we're doing something a little bit different. Today, I'm going to be giving you basically a presentation on a guy by the name of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson is his name. I'll write his name on the board in just a second. And here's the thing. At, at RTS this semester, I'm in a number of courses, seven courses actually, so I've got a full load here. And one of my courses at RTS is called Missions. And it's a history uh, uh, and survey of missions, uh, the, um, the mission field, the philosophy of missions, how to do missions, those kinds of things, and what the Bible has to say about missions. And one of my assignments in that course is to give a Sunday school presentation on a Protestant evangelical missionary. And the session has graciously allowed me to give that presentation this morning in between our Ten Commandments series and our Colossians series. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to be talking about Adoniram Judson. He was a Protestant evangelical missionary in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. And I'm excited to start talking about him. And what we're going to do as we go through this sort of one-part series, if you will, is we're going to do three things. The first thing that we're going to do is we are going to ask the question, why should we as Christians study other people in history? Why does that matter? Why should we care what Christians have done in previous centuries or in previous eras of history. Second thing we'll do is just a, a very brief historical background of Judson's days and when he was on earth. What was going on in the world? Where was he born? Those kinds of things so that we can have a good understanding of his, his life and ministry. And then the third thing we'll look at is his life and ministry and the, um, where he was a missionary to and his experiences there and how the Lord used him to bring hundreds of thousands of people to Christ through his work extended throughout the centuries. So first thing we'll do this morning, why should Christians care about studying other people? Maybe you, some of you wonder why this would make a good Sunday school lesson. Why should we care about studying other Christians throughout the centuries? Or just for that matter, why should we care about studying anything in other centuries? I mean, it's the past. 
It's already happened. Who cares? We don't have any control over it. What we should really do is focus on the present and on the future, because that's what we do have control over. Who needs the past? Well, I think we do need the past. I think a lot of you do. I know we have some uh, teachers of history here, at least previous teachers of history here, who would say the opposite. I would think that history is important. And I've, I've got three reasons why we as Christians ought to study people in history particularly Christians in history, but just people in history in general. First reason, why should we as Christians study the lives of other Christians? The first thing is to learn about the world during other periods of history and to learn the things that the world was struggling with in those periods and how that maybe differs from today or how it maybe is the same with today. You know, one of the biggest problems that we as Christians have is that we don't know our history very well. We don't know the history of the church very well. This is one of the reasons, I'm sure, why Pastor Adam did a Sunday School series on church history. Uh, Whenever he did that, I just know he did it somewhat recently. It's because we as Christians need to know what happened in history, how we got here. The America, the, the church that we live in today, did not come spontaneously out of nothing. It exists today because of a series of decisions and events that happened throughout history. And a series of events that God is working in. And so we as Christians want to know what, what happened in previous centuries, say, for in the church. There's a lot of heresies that continue to, to, to um, come up throughout the church ages. For example, today, there's a, a, a theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem. Some of you may have heard of him. He published a very uh, popular systematic theology that a lot of Christian universities use in their theology courses. He promotes a number of Christological heresies in that systematic theology. And most Christians don't even know about that because they don't know their church history and they don't know the heresies that happened in previous centuries. So one of the reasons we study the lives of others is to get familiar with, the, with all of the, the areas of history and the kinds of things that they were dealing with then so that we know our history and we're not doomed to repeat it. Now, you've heard that statement before. Those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. We don't want to be those people. So that's the first reason. We want to understand other periods of history. Second reason we should study people like Adoniram Judson or other people is to see the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the ages. Remember, the Holy Spirit is not just working in us today. The Spirit was working throughout people throughout history, all of history. And the Spirit, and it's amazing, when you study history, you can see the Spirit working. You can see the Spirit raising up great teachers and great evangelists and great people who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to to all kinds of people and how the Spirit used them and how the Spirit worked through them. And it's such an incredible... um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word here. It's such an incredible um, assurance of, of our faith that we can see that our faith is not just something for the present day, but it was something that was going on in previous centuries and, and people were being used by the Spirit of God to do great and mighty things. And then the third reason we should study the lives of others is to be inspired. To be inspired by the examples that other Christians and, and even non-Christians in history leave for us. So many people did so many great things in the past. And we can use these stories and these historical accounts of these people to be inspired to do things ourselves. Now, as we look at Adoniram Judson today, he was a missionary to Burma, which is in Asia, and today it's called Myanmar. That's the uh, modern 
name for it, Myanmar. He was a missionary to Burma. Now, just because we study the story of his life today doesn't mean that we should all feel called to go be missionaries to Burma. Right? That was his work that God called him to. But what we should be inspired to do as we look at his life today is we should be inspired to do what God calls us to do and to be passionate about it and to not fail to follow his calling. So when we study the lives of other Christians and non-Christians in history, we can be inspired by their examples and be inspired by the way that the Spirit used them so that we too can be people that the Spirit uses to do great things. Okay, And those great things could be between just us and one other person or it could be between us and many other people. We have no idea the way that God will use us. So those are the three reasons why we should study the lives of others. And, and there's a lot more reasons I could put out there. But that's just a brief introduction here to the fact that this is important. Studying the lives of other Christians throughout history is important. And today we're looking at Adoniram Judson. I'm going to write his name on the board just so that you can see it. Adoniram Judson. He... In case you aren't familiar with who he is and what he did, his title, if you look him up on Wikipedia, the all-knowing and perfect inerrant website for all things information, uh, he is known as the father of modern Baptist missions. And we're going to look at why it's important to look at his life and the example that he can leave for us, even though um, he wasn't a Presbyterian. Because believe it or not, there are Christians who aren't Presbyterians. All right? So we'll look at his life and his theology in a little bit. But Adoniram Judson, he was born on August 9th of 1788 in Massachusetts. He was born 1788 in Massachusetts. Now tell me, what happened around that period of history in 1776, just a few years before that? War. What war? Revolutionary. The Revolutionary War, that's right. In 1776, he had the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And so, just to give you some context here, Judson is being born into the world of colonial America just after the time of the Revolutionary War. And that's going to have a significant impact on the kinds of theology that he's going to have as he grows up and as he goes out into missions. Because he was born in Massachusetts. Now, I don't know how familiar y'all are with um, Massachusetts and with just colonial American history in general. But Massachusetts was sort of a hot spot at, in this period for Puritans and for Presbyterians. This was where they loved to be. This was in New England, and Massachusetts particularly. The Puritans were there. And the Puritans had come to America to establish Presbyterian colonies. Uh, they, they wanted to find a land that was, that was religiously free and religiously neutral so that they could establish a Presbyterian colony that was governed by um, where state and church were sort of intertwined and they weren't quite as separated as they were in America when it eventually came to be. And the Puritans thoroughly were interested in having a Presbyterian nation, having a Presbyterian colony, if nothing else. They wanted everyone in their sect to be Presbyterians. And they fought hard for this. The Puritans originated in England. And in the decades after the Reformation, Bloody Mary was on the throne, and she was a Roman Catholic, a staunch Roman Catholic, you know, killing Protestants and so on. And the Puritans 
were trying to get together and they're like, how can we get Presbyterianism to be the standard religion of England? How can we figure this out? How can we get this to work? And, um, and after Bloody Mary came on the throne, then Elizabeth I came and took the crown and she was a Protestant. So the Presbyterians were like, oh, here we go. Now we can get Presbyterianism as the religion of England. Didn't work. See, Elizabeth was not a fire-breathing Protestant. She was just sort of a Protestant in general, but was willing to tolerate other uh, like Catholic religion and Anglicanism and so on. And you have the, all these successions of monarchs coming. After Elizabeth, you have James, and then you have Charles, and then Charles II, and James II, and so on. And all of these monarchs were either against Presbyterianism, or they didn't care enough about it to make it something official. And so the Presbyterians basically got fed up the Puritans got fed up with this. They went to the Netherlands, couldn't get things established there, and so they came to America, and finally they had what they wanted. They had a Presbyterian colonies, and it was fantastic for them. And it was fantastic for everybody who was Presbyterian. But the problem was that everyone wanted to be Presbyterian who was born into these colonies. There was a guy named Roger Williams who rebelled against his Presbyterian church. He was a Presbyterian minister. He rebelled against the church and went to Providence, Rhode Island and started the modern Baptist movement. And that's where most of the Baptists that we have in America came from, is uh, rebelling Presbyterians. So what's interesting is that when, um, when uh, Judson was born in 1788 in Massachusetts, he was born at a time when that Baptist movement was growing exponentially. And it would thoroughly impact him theologically. So that's just a little bit of historical background as to what's going on in America at this time. We'll see why it's significant as we continue here. But getting back to Judson now, we're going to continue with his life. Judson, being born in Massachusetts in 1788, he was born to a Congregationalist minister. So a pastor who was in a Congregationalist denomination. Now, Congregationalists, unlike, uh, say, the PCA, for example, Congregationalists believed that every congregation needed to be autonomous. That is, every local church needed to have no um, external coercion from any kind of presbytery or bishopric or anything like that. It, the congregation is all by itself completely free to do whatever it wants and to teach whatever it wants. And uh, that's the kind of church I grew up into. It was a Lutheran Congregationalist church where there was no denominational control over it at all. So he's born into this. He uh, is raised by this Congregationalist minister. They were Pado baptists They believed in the baptism of infants. When he was three years old, when Judson was three years old, he could read pretty much any English book. Think about that. He's three years old. He could read pretty much any English book. I know kids who are four years old and can't talk yet. Okay? This is incredible. This guy's brilliant. Right? He could read English books at the age of three. He took navigation lessons at the age of ten. Now, in those days, they didn't have GPS and Google Maps and those sorts of things. So navigation today, a three-year-old can do, even if they can't read an English book. But in those days, navigation was accomplished with complex geometry and astronomy, and you had special tools where you'd look into the sky to navigate. It was incredibly complicated, and he's doing this at the age of 10. This is a brilliant, brilliant man, or boy, actually, at the time. He studied theology as a child, and he entered Providence College at the age of 17. So he's going to college at 17. And it was at Providence College that he met, met a good friend of his. 
and met someone who became a good friend of his, more precisely. And this friend of his was a deist. And the friend convinced Judson to become a deist. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, uh, deism. I assume you've probably at least heard of it. Maybe you don't know exactly how it's, uh, what it teaches. But deism is the idea that God created the world and then stepped away from the world and doesn't interfere with it at all. So, and this was very popular in the 17th and 18th centuries. They were smart enough and wise enough to recognize that the world could not create itself. That the world is not eternal. That there had to be some kind of intelligent design that designed the world. It couldn't be otherwise. And so they posited that there was a god, some kind of deity, who created everything, wound up the clock, if you will, and then set the clock down and left it. He set up all the laws of logic. He set up the laws of physics. He made everything so that the world could function on its own, pushed start, and then walked away and went to do something else. Who knows what? That's deism. There are still some deists today, but it's not as popular as it was in Judson's day. It took uh, the colonial America by storm in a lot of ways. Um, Benjamin Franklin was a deist. Um, so there were some founding fathers that were deists. But anyway, Judson became a deist by uh, the work of his friend, by the um, evangelism, if you will, of his friend convincing him that this was true. And so Judson then uh, was not a Christian in his years of college at Providence College. There's The story is told that while he was at college, while he was, say, going home for Christmas break or something, he was staying at an inn. And he, while he was laying in bed late at night, he heard groaning and moaning and yelling coming from the room next to him. And he thought, what the world is going on? And as he listened to it, he figured out that the person in the other room, whoever it was, was dying. Was clearly going to probably die that night. And so Judson began to contemplate the idea of death. And he, he was struck with his own mortality as a human. And he was thinking, man, what's going to happen to me when I die? Because deists don't have an answer to that question. Because God's not interfering with the world. He doesn't care if you have a relationship with him or not. He definitely didn't give a Bible of any kind. God is just not caring about anything in the creation. He's, he's completely divorced from it. So he, he, him, Judson as a deist did not have any answer to the question, what's going to happen after I die? And he began to ponder it and began to think about it. And it kept him awake for most of the night. And when he finally got up that morning and he went to the owner of the hotel, the clerk, and he said, hey, listen, what, what was that moaning and yelling going on last night? And the clerk said, oh, that was a person who died last night. And that person was so-and-so from Providence College. And that so-and-so person, whatever his name was, was Judson's friend who convinced him to become a deist. So Judson's friend who convinced him to become a deist, died that night, and that profoundly impacted Judson. And he said, wow. He said, where's the hope in this? How, where's the hope in this kind of view? And he, be, he was struck by that, and he began to ponder very carefully, what is the meaning of life? Who is God? Why are we here? those kinds of questions, and he was drawn to a place called Andover Theological Seminary after he finished Providence College, and he studied theology there, and he became 
saved. He found Jesus there in his study of the scriptures, and he accepted Christ as his Savior and Lord, and he became a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes people who have a a testimony like this are sometimes looking for fire insurance when they become Christians, right? They get terrified about hell, and so out of a terror of hell, they accept Jesus as sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card. And a lot of those kinds of um, conversions end up being false conversions. They just look like it on the outside, but they aren't actually. But for Judson, that was not the case. For Judson, he was a legitimate believer in Christ because what he did after he converted was he said that he wanted to be passionately devoted to whatever work that God called him to do out of, joy, out of a joyful response to his saving faith and to his being saved by God. And so Judson began to ponder what God might be calling him to, and he began to feel the call to missions, the call to bringing the gospel to other people, just like his professors had brought the gospel to him at his seminary. And so he began to meet with various uh, people. He found friends at Williams College, which was close to the seminary, and he and his friends got together. They were all thinking about the call to, to the mission field, and they met on the haystack at Williams College, just a haystack sitting in, in a barn somewhere. And they would sit there very famously and they would talk about missions and where they thought they were going. They would pray together, asking God to make it clear to them where he would have them go. And finally, in, where's the day here? There we go. Finally, in 1812, Judson got married to his wife, Anne, and they set sail seven days later for India. They were sent by the American Board for Foreign Missions, which was a Pado-Baptist organization, a Presbyterian organization. And they said, yeah, we'll send you guys to India. We need missionaries over there. There's not much evangelism going on. And as he and his wife would find out when they get there, there were zero Christians in that area of the world at the time. Now, Judson, as he was on the ship, heading for India with his wife. This is a long ship ride. Remember, they're sailing like across the whole known world here at the time. This is a massively long, took a couple of years usually to get that far by boat. And as Judson's on the ship, he's studying theology and he's studying his, his Bible and he comes to the conclusion as he's studying that infant baptism is not a legitimate form of baptism. So he comes to that sort of unfortunate theological position. But here's what I think is really fascinating about him. You know what he could have done at this point is he could have said, well, I have changed my theology, but who cares? No one at home will know. doesn't matter. I'm going to be in India for the rest of my life. No one will ever know I came to this conclusion. I'll just be by myself and, and just kind of keep my theology undercover. And you see, that would have been very tempting for him to do. Because the mission agency that sent him to India and paid for his boat ride over there was an infant baptizing organization, a Presbyterian organization. And Judson felt, after he became a Baptist on the boat, that it was unfair and it was um, not right for him to be accepting money from the organization, sending what they thought was a Presbyterian missionary, who was actually a Baptist missionary. And so he sent a letter back to... America, and he said, listen, guys, he said, I've come to a different theological position, and so I need to stop accepting funding from you if you agree with me. And, and they did agree with him, and they said, okay, well, we're not going to send you any funding. Now, 
here's what's interesting about this. It's unfortunate for us as Presbyterians when someone does this, right? Because we believe in infant baptism. We believe that's biblical. But here's what I think we can take as, as pretty amazing from Judson. Look at his integrity. Because again, he could have kept this under wraps. He could have pretended that he was a Presbyterian. He could have just kept silent on the issue. But what he actually did was he was honest with them. And he said, listen, I've changed my theology. I can't accept funding. And that is a big deal. Think about a missionary who no longer has funding. That's a problem if you're a missionary and you don't have funding, if you're dependent on the funding. And so he really put himself in a very precarious situation, him and his wife, in a very precarious situation. But out of his integrity, he informed his agency of his change. Now, one thing to remember, we might think, okay, is that really a... a like, we understand it may not be theologically correct, but is that really a legitimate reason to divorce yourself from the mission agency? Could the mission agency just say, okay, yeah, we know you're a Baptist, but you're still going to preach the gospel, you're still going to translate the Bible, you're still going to do all this stuff, so we'll still fund you anyway. But you got to understand that in the late 18th century here that we're looking at, and actually the early 19th century, the Baptist movement was very new, and it was seen by the majority of Americans as being sort of on the fringes of orthodoxy. The Baptist movement was not seen as being, you know, faithful Christianity at all. Now today, that's a little bit different, right? Because today you could say that if you just counted noses in America, the majority of Christians are, uh, claim to be Baptists, whether that's Reformed Baptist or Arminian Baptist. And so today it's much more accepted and much more within the bounds of orthodoxy. And you know, Presbyterians and Baptists unite on a lot of things. But in Judson's day, he was basically almost declaring himself a just-about-over-the-line heretic. And that's why he had to separate. Now, I'm not con condoning his theology, but I'm just having us look at his integrity. That's the example we should look at here. His integrity. He told the truth. And he was willing to do that regardless of the cost. And in this case, it was the cost of his funding. And that's important. He was following the, the uh, commandment here. Right. We're going to go back to our commandments discussion. So anyway, he and his wife divorced themselves from this um, uh, organization. And as Judson continues his work in Asia, there's going to be a Baptist organization founded in America designed specifically to fund him and other Baptist missionaries. And eventually, that organization is going to spawn into various other organizations, one of them being the Southern Baptist Convention. So just FYI, if you want to know where that came from, that was sort of as a direct result of Judson's decision here, which I think is kind of interesting. Because um, Southern Baptists are pretty big here in America, especially in this area of the world. Okay. Um, but anyway, Judson and Anne, they go to India. They sail there. They finally arrive in India now. They're, they have no funding at all. So all they have is the bags on their back, and they've got to go into this country and figure out how they're going to you know, make a living for themselves for one thing, but also evangelize the people. And they get to India, they get to the border, they get to customs, and the government won't let them in. Can't get into the country. They try over and over again for months, blood, sweat, and tears, pleading with the officials, please let us in. Nothing. Can't get into India. They will not budge. And so they keep trying to get in. They start like sailing around the coast to the east, still not working. And finally, they get to the end of India, and now the nation of Burma is starting to be on the coast. And they think, oh, maybe this is God. 
Maybe God is saying, we don't want you to go to India. We want you to go to another nation, Burma. So that's what they do, and they, they apply to get into Burma. And they're let in. With flying colors, government says, oh yeah, come on in. And they take that as God's, God's uh, providence right there, saying, okay, we'll let you into Burma. So they go into Burma, and they begin to strategize about how they're going to, to evangelize these people. And Judson came up with three goals for his lifetime. He says, in my lifetime, I want these three things to happen in, in my ministry. This is what I'm aiming at. I know God can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign, blah, blah. But I want to try to pursue these three goals. First goal that Judson had was to have one church. He wanted to plant one church with at least 100 members. That's his goal. One church with 100 members, and then he wanted to translate the entire Bible into Burmese, the language of the Burman people. Now that, that is a little bit of a lofty goal. And we might think, really? One church and translating the Bible is a lofty goal? Well, here's why it's lofty. He gets to Burma. You know the kind of culture that Burma had? It was 100% you know, Buddhist with a bunch of spiritual religions mixed into it. There were millions of people in this country and zero Christians. Absolutely no Christians whatsoever in the whole country for generations after generations after generations. Zero Christians. Profoundly Buddhist and, and a mixture of random folk spiritual religions, very much in tune with warding off spirits and those kinds of things. And not only that, but, but the Burmese language itself, the Burmese language itself is one of the most difficult languages in the world to learn. And he knew that at the time. The only language more difficult than Burmese is Chinese. If any of you have ever looked at Chinese, you can understand why that would be. You just see one character of the Chinese language, you're like, ah, oh, I don't want to ever learn that. Burmese is like that. It is one of the most difficult languages in the world to learn. And it's not like Judson, back in his home in Massachusetts in America, could just go to Boston and pick up a copy of a Burmese grammar and start studying. That didn't exist at that time. He and his wife, having no understanding of the culture at all, not even planning to go to Burma for one thing, but not having any understanding of the culture, know nothing about the language, think they're going to come into this culture, establish themselves and try to make a living for themselves, and plant a church with 100 members and translate the whole Bible into Burmese. That is some lofty goals right there. That's hard stuff. That's not something he could have done on his own. He needed God's help to do that. But nonetheless, he started working. Judson started working. They built a little house after they, they studied the houses of everyone around them and then they built a house similar so that they would try to fit in with the culture and contextualize themselves and Judson began right away after they built their house and started collecting food around the area to feed themselves he started right away going to various villages in the area preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel one on one now this was awfully difficult for him since he didn't know the Burmese language very well right it's hard to preach the gospel in English sometimes, let alone in another language you've never known. And so he's trying to learn the language a little bit, have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people you know, in the market and things, and he starts evangelizing. And he's trying to figure out how he can best evangelize these people. At first he starts wearing yellow, a yellow robe when he goes out into the market. And that's because the Buddhist spiritual teachers would wear yellow robes 
whenever they were out in public. And so Judson thought, hey, I'm a spiritual teacher. I'll wear a yellow robe. And then everyone thought he was Buddhist, and they were confused about what he was teaching, so he stopped wearing that and wore something else. But he, he, you can see what he's doing here. He's trying to figure out the culture. He's trying to figure out, okay, how can I present myself in such a way that they'll understand what I'm trying to do? And so that I don't stand out like an American from the colonies. It's hard stuff when you're a missionary, contextualization, knowing what to do and what not to do. What do you do to accommodate to the customs of the land? What do you do that has to be different from the customs of the land in order to distinguish Christianity from false religion? all kinds of things you got to be thinking about. And so he labors for six years, evangelizing one-on-one, trying to preach the gospel, desperately trying to learn one of the hardest languages in the world, desperately trying to figure out the context that he's in, the culture that he's in, all these things. Labors for six years. Not a single convert. Not even a single bite on the religion of Christianity. Nothing. Six years. I don't know if I'd last one year with no converts if I were doing something like that. Six years. And to top that all off, during that time, he and his wife had their first son. They named their son Roger William Judson. And they named him after Roger Williams, the founder of the Baptist movement in America. So it shows his, his uh, theological influences there. Name your first son after the guy. But Roger William Judson, firstborn son, died within eight months of being born. This is profound despair happening for Judson and his wife. Just think about that. You're in a culture. You have no idea what's going on. You're trying to learn the language. You're so out of your what, what you've grown up in. And you and your wife are desperately holding on to each other, saying, okay, we've got each other, we've got each other, we've got the Lord. He gives you a son. The son dies eight months later. This is hard. Really hard. Six years goes by. No converts. And then finally in 1819, Judson baptized one convert. His first first convert to Christianity. A woodworker from the town nearby. And we would, I, I would be tempted to think, Oh man, six years, one convert? This is so discouraging. But here's a quote from Judson's diaries. He said, quote, Oh, may this conversion of the one woodworker prove to be the beginning of a series of baptisms in the Burman Empire which shall continue in uninterrupted success until the end of the age. So Judson's not discouraged. He's encouraged. He says, May there be many more baptisms as a result of this. May more people come to Jesus Christ. May more people hear the gospel. Well, he labors for another six years. All right, so now he's, he's been laboring for 12 years total now. Labors for another six years, continuing to preach the gospel. Now he's got a Burmese convert so he can get into the language a little more and have someone to converse with a little more and, and get better at the culture and understanding it. He labors for another six years. And then the government catches wind of the kinds of things that he's doing. Uh, one more instance of government being a problem. Government figures out what he's doing. They accuse him of being a British spy and they throw him in prison. Still no more converts, by the way. Twelve years now. Still no more converts. And he gets thrown in prison, accused of being a British spy, and he's in prison for 21 months. 
and his wife comes nearly every day to the prison during that, those 21 months, and she pleads with the officials to let him out. 21 months. Add up how many days that is. It's a lot. She pleads with them, and finally, after the 21 months, they let him out. That's really a miracle. They didn't let people out of prison in those days. You were left to rot. They finally let him out, and shortly after he gets let out and he continues to preach the gospel, another 18 converts convert to Christianity. So now he's got a church, and now he's got 19 converts total, plus him and his wife, 21 people. And they plant their first church. They have their worship services and so on. There's finally something happening. But he's still far short of his goal. He wants 100 converts and a church. But now he's got the church, so he's got one thing. And his 20 converts. And it's through these converts that he continues to get a better understanding of the Burmese language. And he begins to translate the scriptures. And he starts with the book of Matthew. Start with the gospels. And he begins to translate the book of Matthew into Burmese. And another missionary comes to help him with that project at the very tail end of it and brings a um, printing press, state-of-the-art back then, brings a printing press, and uh, Judson prints 800 copies of his Burmese Gospel of Matthew and begins to distribute them. And now the church is beginning to grow a little more. Because where you have the power of the Word, you start to see a lot of the work of the Spirit happening. And so the word is now in their language and it's beginning to be dispersed. And more and more people are coming to Jesus. And Judson, over the next 12 years, continued to translate the Bible into Burmese. And he wrote the first ever Burmese English dictionary. That didn't exist. There were really no English people that knew the language of Burmese. He's the first one. And he he built this dictionary so that people could translate other works into Burmese. This is Burmese English Dictionary. And by the time of his death, on April 12, 1850, Judson had translated the entire Old and the New Testament into Burmese. What a blessing for those people to have the Word of God in their language. And they had it. And Judson, when he died, continued to labor all the rest of his life. When he died, he met his goal that he set out when he began. And not only did he meet his goals from the beginning, but he far surpassed them. When he died, he had translated the whole Bible into Burmese. He had planted not one, not two, not ten, not fifty churches, but a hundred churches. Remember, his goal in the beginning was one church. He planted a hundred churches And there were over 8,000 believers at the time of his death. 8,000 Burmese Christians. The Spirit was working. And just as a a bit of extended information, if you continue throughout the centuries since the time of Judson, there's now something like a million Christians in Burma right now. Massive churches. Christian universities and colleges being built throughout the 18th and 20th centuries. Just amazing work going on there. In fact, um, what's really interesting is that today, in Burma, or as it's now known as Myanmar, if you look at a modern map, Burma and Myanmar are the same nation, just different names. If you look at a modern map of Myanmar, where Judson is ministering, it has the third largest population of Baptists out of all the nations in the whole world. The only nations above it are America and India. 
as having more uh, Baptists than anything else. So you could see this is a massive movement that he started. His Bible that he translated is still, still now, 300 years later, wait, no, 200 years later, is still the standard Bible used by the Burmese people. In fact, in the 20th century, they were asked, it's like, do you need a new translation? Should we get some scholars together and put a better translation than Judson's? That one's kind of old and outdated. And the Burmese people said, what? No, Judson's is a perfect translation. Now, really, there's no such thing as a perfect translation. But they're saying it's a very, very good translation. It's so faithful and so helpful. We don't need a new one. We don't want a new one. They're still using it 200 years later. Something Judson could probably not have even imagined. In fact, the churches, the Christian churches in Myanmar, they celebrate, even to this day, once a year, Judson Day. Where they honor the work the Spirit of God did through the person of Adoniram Judson. And, of course, his wife, too, because she had a profound impact both on him and on the people that he's with. And so that is really a one-morning brief discussion of the person of Adoniram Judson. And I think as we think about his life, as we close here thinking about it, we can see, first of all, what I was talking about at the beginning this morning. Remember those three things that, that, those three reasons we study people in history? When we first of all study people in history so we can get a better understanding of the world in which they lived? It's a good thing to know. The kind of Christianity that was about in those periods, the kind of what, what they considered to be orthodoxy, what they considered to be right in the majority. It's interesting when we look at Adoniram Judson and we see how the Spirit used him so mightily among the Burmese people. Used a flawed man. I'm sure he sinned great plenty. But the Spirit used him to lead what would eventually become literally millions of Christians to be followers of Christ and then finally really his most important contribution to us as we think about him in this room this morning the most important contribution of Judson was that this Holy Spirit used him to bring the gospel to a nation of people many of whom eventually received it and became followers of Christ and this ought to inspire us to think about how we can be used by God like that now I'm not saying that God's going to use each one of us to bring millions of people to Christ. Right, that's just not realistic. He certainly could if he wanted to. right? God's got the power to do that if he wanted to. But you know what? Sometimes God just wants to use us to lead our children to Christ. Sometimes God just wants us to help our children become firm in the faith after someone else led them to Christ. Sometimes God wants us to lead our friends or our neighbors to Christ. Sometimes God <laughs> wants us to be active in our church to help people grow in Christ. These are equally great ways that the Spirit uses us. And when, we, when we are, I think when we're discouraged and thinking, man, where is God working today? Sometimes we can be pessimistic about what's going on in the world. And when we're tempted to think that way, you got to remember, God can do this kind of thing in any age. If he can bring millions of Burmese people who were generation after generation after generation, Buddhist and, and random folk spiritual religions, if he can bring those kind of people to Jesus, how much more can he bring us in America to Jesus? He can do these things in his own time. And what we need to do is we need to prayerfully consider how we, as God's people, can be used as means 
to accomplish what God has ordained that he will do from all eternity. That's what we need to think about. And we can see with, with regard to Judson, he was open to the call of God and he responded positively, overwhelmingly positively, and God used him mightily. Let's do that too. Let's do that too. Let's be willing. Sometimes we're blind to it. We don't think about it. Let's not be that way. We want to be open to what God will use us for. Okay? And that's not a cliche thing. That's not something to just put on a t-shirt. This is something we live by as God's people. Alright? Let's pray as we close this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the example of Adoniram Judson as your great servant. As a man who was willing to do what you called him to do and who went to the other side of the world to a culture he'd never been to to a nation he'd never been in and he worked hard and he accomplished what you wanted him to do Lord you may not call us across the world in fact you probably won't but help us to have the same willingness that Judson did when you call us to do things here However big or however small we may think they are in the moment, Lord, they're all big to you. And we pray that you would help us to be willing to be used in any way that you want us to be. Help us to open our eyes. Help us not to presume whether one person is elect or not, and on that basis not do anything. Help us be open to the fact that we could be the means to bring any one of your people to you. Lord, we thank you for Judson, and we thank you that despite his faults, He's a great person for us to look up to as we can see your spirit use him mightily. Grant to us the joy of doing what you call us to do and help us to be thoroughly nourished this morning as we praise you and worship and hear the preaching of your word from Pastor Adam. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen.